Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before I continue, on August 30th at 2pm, I'm hosting another Zoom History Conference, all about T.G. Hamilton, a former MLA in Winnipeg who would start to hold seances in the city. He'd become very well known, and people like Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle would come to his house for these seances. It's a cool story, and it's only $5 to register, which you can do at CanadaEHX.com and click register. It's also free for all my patrons, and you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX, and you can become a patron for as little as $3 a month. By the summer of 1943, the Allies were beginning to push into Italy to gain a foothold in southern Europe. This was one year prior to D-Day, and Canadians were pushing into Italy with the Battle of Sicily. This battle would last from July 9, 1943 to August 17th, and it would be a huge success for the Allies, taking back Sicily and opening up the Mediterranean sea lanes to Allied merchant ships for the first time since 1941. This episode isn't about that battle, though. It is about a battle within the larger battle, and one that Canadians had a big hand in. The Battle of Osoro. For the Canadians, the first ten days of the Battle of Sicily had been relatively easy, only coming into contact with German and Italian rearguards. The Canadian 1st Brigade continued advancing on the island, and on July 19th, new orders were put forward to take Leonfort and Osoro. The 2nd Canadian Brigade would be tasked with taking the village of Leonfort, while the 1st Canadian Brigade would go after Osoro which provided the highest point for miles in any direction. Not quite a mountain, despite being called Mount Osoro, it was more of a large hill, with a relatively gentle slope on one side, but it was no small hill, rising one kilometre into the air. As the Canadians in the 1st Brigade attempted to cross the Detaino River, which was dry but still provided an obstacle, they met their first significant resistance from the Germans, who were watching from higher ground. The 48th Highlanders managed to secure a crossing, but the Royal Canadian Regiment would lose nine vehicles to mines and accurate fire from Osoro. The terrain was not easy for Canadians. They had to deal with a cliff a thousand feet high with a castle overlooking the countryside. The only road to the town clung to rising land around Osoro, with hairpin turns and without their nine tanks, the journey would not be an easy one. Brigadier Howard Graham would tell Lieutenant Colonel Albert Sutcliffe of the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment that going up the road on the mountain would be a slaughter. The two men did notice there were goat tracks, and looking at a map with the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment intelligence officer, Captain Maurice Cocken, who had experienced climbing mountains in the Andes, the three men agreed that the only way up was the southeast cliff face, taking the goat paths when they could. Graham returned to the 1st Canadian Division headquarters to devise an artillery plan, while Sutcliffe and Cocken went to the regiment headquarters to study the cliff. At the same time, Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Crow took them to a clump of trees where the anti-tank gun platoon was concealed. Crow then told Lieutenant Sheridan Atkinson to establish the range by firing a high-explosive tracer fitted round at the German artillery position at the summit. Atkinson told his gun sergeant, who said that doing so would draw German fire right on them. Atkinson agreed and returned to the senior officers only to be told to follow his orders by Crow. He did so as Crow, Sutcliffe and Cocken stood nearby. As was expected, the Germans immediately responded with an 88mm shell which exploded right next to the gun, 
killing Sutcliffe and giving Cawkin wounds he would soon die from. Crow and the gun crew were unharmed. As Cawkin was dying in a stretcher, he told Major John Tweedsmere, who was now in command after the death of Sutcliffe, to not go up the road. Due to this, movement in the daylight was abandoned. In order to move at night without detection, Major Alex Campbell was ordered to form a special assault force made of volunteers that consisted of one platoon from each of the rifle companies. The men would be stripped of everything but guns and ammunition, and their task was to scale the cliffs and occupy the crest of the mountain before dawn. Tweedsmere would write in his report later, By dusk we had sorted ourselves out, stripped for action, and eaten an enormous meal. As warriors we did not look particularly prepossessing. After ten days with virtually no chance to repair or clean our clothing, or ourselves, we were a dirty, ragged lot. In all, four companies were at the base of the cliff. A Company under Campbell would go up the cliff, while Tweedsmere would take B and C Companies up the gentler path on the eastern slope, while D Company would remain at the base of the mountain to protect the rear. One man with A Company was legendary Canadian writer Farley Mowat. As the men stood in the moonlight, Tweedsmere recited part of Henry V's speech at Agincourt, and he would say, And gentlemen in England now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhood cheap, while any speak who fought with us. Tweedsmere would say later, Of those tired officers, every back straightened and light returned to their tired eyes as they walked away determined to tackle anything, and they did. The men began moving at dusk, moving through a maze of gullies, steep ridges, and water courses strewn with boulders. Absolute silence was required to succeed, which almost seemed impossible at the time. At 4 a.m., the assault company had scaled the last ridge and discovered that the base of the mountain was still separated from them by a gully 100 feet deep. They couldn't turn back, so they went to the ditch, crossed the bottom, took a breath, and with dawn one hour away, they began climbing up the side of the gully. Each man began climbing the cliff, pulling each other up, passing weapons and ammunition from hand to hand. One man, the signaler, made the journey carrying a heavy wireless set on his back. Not one man slipped or dropped a single clip of ammunition. Mowat would say later that, Each of us performed our own private miracle that night. Ledge to ledge we oozed upwards like some vast mold. To the east, where a ripple of light was spreading across the dawn sky, was bursting upon us with subtropic swiftness. My companion jumped to catch the lip of what seemed to be the next terrace and disappeared above me. Sergeant Alfred Montanay would say six decades later, don't ask me how we did it. We just climbed up that cliff at night. Corporal Bob Wigmore would say, The Germans never thought anybody would cross the rough country approaching a sorrow from that direction. Of course, they didn't know Canadians. The A Company finally made it to the crest of the hill and managed to take the summit from the sentries without losing a single man. The companies under Tweedsmere soon arrived and there were now 500 Canadians on the summit. Wigmore would say, We dug in the best we could. With the Canadians now on the summit, the Germans began firing their light anti-aircraft guns directly at them, and for the next three hours, the Canadians were subjected to between 200 and 300 shells. Whenever the artillery paused, the Canadians pressed forward. With the sun rising, water disappearing fast along with ammunition, the Canadians were fighting for their lives. The Canadians then began to direct shells directly on the German guns thanks to the signaler who came up the cliff carrying his equipment. By noon, nearly all the German guns were knocked out. The regiment on the hill was able to hold their spot through the night, but had no food except for rations. 
On July 22nd, a party of 100 men from the Royal Canadian Regiment brought food and supplies. Also arriving were the 48th Highlanders, who provided tactical relief by attacking on the western side of a Soro, driving the enemy into town. This allowed the men to fill in craters so that the tanks from the Three Rivers Regiment could pass through. By 2pm on July 22nd, the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment were finally relieved. Amazingly, only eight men were killed in the attack. I'd like to go now to Alfred Montanay, who describes the battle for the Memory Project. I belong to the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment of the 1st Canadian Division. Our colonel was dead, and the 2IC was badly wounded, and, but he managed to get back to the brigade headquarters. And, uh, and then our, uh, our 2IC, he took over. He was just a young man. His name was Lord Tweedsmuir, John Tweedsmuir. And he was a, 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 a captain and, and a major. And he told him, he said, John, he said, for God's sake, don't go up to the front. Go, go up the mountain down the road. He says it's suicide. So John, making his conscience, he decided that, uh, well, to advance on to, to town, that we would make a, a flanking movement to the right. And um, he asked for volunteers and, and to make a, I think it was a, six or eight of us volunteered to, to go in there. And he decided that we'd make a flank movement to the right and go around the town like down in the mountain like this. So we started out and we traveled all night through there. And uh, we got her down to the back of the mountain, and uh, there was you know, and there was a great big ravine there at the bottom of the mountain. So we had to go down in it and cross it, and then the cliff was there, and he said, "Okay, boys, up you go." So we started climbing the climbing the cliff, and we managed to get to the, the top of it just as dawn was breaking. And everything had to be real quiet so the, the, the Germans wouldn't know we were there. Because if they'd found out we were there, we'd never got out of there. Uh, one of the officers that was with us on that forage, uh, he, had, he had trained in artillery during, before. So they, they going up down, they carried this big uh, radio up there. With how they did it, I don't know, but they did it. And uh, we, the, on top of the mountain, there was this big fancy telescope that the Germans had up there. Because from the top of the mountain, you could see the whole countryside. There's a regular bird's eye view. And so he, with the radio and the television, or the, the telescope, he spotted where the German artillery was. He radioed back to our artillery, and they opened up, and it wasn't too long. They wiped the German artillery out, and then the fighting stopped, and uh, the shelling stopped, and then uh, the Germans decided to retreat. Still, to this day, I still don't know how we did it. And everybody that was with the people that went with us on the tour, 
they stood there, shook their head and said, well, how did you guys ever do that? We were going by feel, because it was in, 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 the, in the night, black, and you couldn't see nothing. So all you had to do was, was feel your way up. And I, I still don't know how we went on it, but we did. I was, oh, I don't know. I was lucky, I guess. I'd, all I got knocked out was by a mosquito. We were all farmers and, and city guys, country, town guys. Well, all our all our guys come from from the farms around there in the, in the east in Ontario. No decorations were awarded for Asoro, despite the amazing heroics. But they did earn praise from both their allies and the Germans. One German would say, "Good soldier material." English and Canadians harder in the attack than the Americans. In general, fair ways of fighting. In fieldcraft, superior to our own troops. Very mobile at night. Surprise break-ins, clever infiltrations at night and small groups between our strong points. Farley Mowat would say of the battle, While it was no great victory in terms of casualties inflicted upon the enemy, Asoro was nevertheless a spectacular triumph of endurance and initiative and the spirit of the men, subdued temporarily by their first baptism of heavy shellfire, now rose to the unprecedented heights. The battle would be celebrated in newsreels, distributed to Canada soon after. This newsreel briefly mentions Osoro, but focuses more on the attack on the town. On the left flank, the Americans had taken Marsala and Trapani, and were turning along the northern coastal road. On the right, the British were edging towards Catania, looking for a soft spot in the powerful Axis defense line. In the center, the Canadians took a deep breath after capturing Asoro and prepared for their big swing to the east and Mount Etna. But first there was Leonport, an important road junction in the center of the island. Canadian tanks were brought up in strength and the infantry moved into position. After the battle, the deceased Lieutenant Colonel Sutcliffe would receive the Distinguished Service Order. By August 17th, the British 8th Army and the U.S. 7th Army entered the city of Messina, ending the Battle of Sicily, thanks in large part to the Canadians taking a sorrow almost a month earlier.
I hope you enjoyed that look at the Battle of Asoro, and if you did, please give a rating and review. You can email me with any questions you have at craig at canadaehx.com, and you can find hundreds of articles on Canada's history on my website. Just go to canadaehx.com. Information comes from canadiansoldiers.com, the Maritime Explorer, Legion Magazine, Royal Edmonton Regiment, Military Museum, Don Moore's War Tales, Canadian Archives, Canadian Army Newsreels, and the Memory Project. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.